2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this week with verse 11 and 12. Hopefully we'll be, Lord willing, starting in chapter 2 next time. But open your Bibles with me, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, verse 11 starts with the word, to this end we always pray for you. Paul is a great prayer warrior, prays endlessly for the church and for the people of God. And when he says to this end, we need to consider what he's talking about. Last week we kind of hinted at it, but verses 3 through 10 of this chapter are in the original Greek just one sentence, one continuous thought. Uh, English teachers today might have a fit, run-on sentence that goes on for a whole page. Too much. But to the Greeks, that was the normal way of doing it. One thought was one sentence. And what was that thought? What is Paul's prayer on account of or to this end? Well, it starts off, he praises them for their steadfastness under persecution. Then he reminds them that they are really suffering for the kingdom of God. And he encourages them that this suffering is not showing that God is angry with them and punishing them for their sin, but rather that they're suffering for the kingdom, and that shows that he has counted them worthy of the kingdom. Remember our verse, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Christians do not live for today. We don't live for this life only. We live for and in anticipation of the day of the Lord and for eternity. Now he drives that point home by reminding us first that he will repay those who afflict us. We can trust in his justice as well as his love for his children. That justice will come when he returns. He also reminds us it will be granted relief. As Peter says, you know, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, they were, they were martyred for Christ, by the way, but this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We'll look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Everything in this world that we have will go away. They are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. And finally, he gives us the details about the judgment, about his justice on the godless. And we ended last week with that reminder that the godless will receive what is due them. But what is due them was also due to us. Our sins made us liable for eternal torment in hell forever and ever. The worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. But we have been called by God. We have been saved. The justice that was due to us was delivered to Christ on the cross. All that we deserved he took for himself paying the debt we can never hope to repay. Even if we spent eternity in hell, it would never be repaid, but he paid for it. And this is why we learned last week we will marvel at him on the day when we see and experience this great judgment. 
why he starts this verse off. To this end, we always pray for you. Before we look at that report, though, let us read the chapter and pray. Starting at verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'd always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come now to the conclusion of this thought, to the prayer that Paul offers for his people, the prayer that he offers for your people, we pray that as we look at it, Lord, we might be encouraged, that we might understand that we might grow in our faith and refine our practice and that we might indeed live for that day when your Son is truly and fully revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this is not an actual prayer, but a report on his normal prayers for the people. And he prays that God may consider you worthy of his calling. Now, the idea we saw back in verse 4 and 5 as well, remember we just read, we ourselves boast of your, you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, which you are also suffering. Now, the Greek words translated considered worthy and made worthy here are, are two different words, but he's really talking about the same concept. The, the difference of being in the kingdom of God and being, being called are not, big, not different. They're referring to the same matters. He's just phrased them in two different ways. You... Uh, and the evidence of that is that they're really talking about the same thing. And Paul speaks of this in chapter 2. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, each one of you, and encouraged you 
and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Second, or first, that's First Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. So we've already talked about that passage in the past, but it's the same idea. We're talking about the kingdom of God and about God's calling into that kingdom. And we really need to think about this calling because that will help us understand what he's driving at in this verse. Remember, it all teaches about our, call, our calling in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Same calling. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. It's a beautiful, unbroken chain of salvation from election to being glorified with Christ in heaven forever. Paul speaks of God's calling. He he probably has his own calling in mind. In Colossians, or in Galatians, rather, chapter 1, 13 and following, he says, You've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among the people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who set me apart before I was born, and his calling is from before the foundations of the earth even, we learn in Ephesians 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, Galatians 1, 13 through 16. Note that Paul was called according to the grace of God. But who was this Paul who was called? Well, remember, he was an enemy of the church of Christ. Jesus, when he actually calls him, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, Acts 26, 14. Paul fought his calling to the bitter end. But God's calling is, we say, effectual. It accomplishes God's purpose. We are told that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who walks all things to according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. God has willed that Paul be set aside before Paul was even born, and God will work that out according to the counsel of his own will. Now, Paul was an enemy, and God made him turn to him. Is God, some might ask, violating their free will? Is God forcing them to answer the call the way he wants, even though they reject him and despise him and are his enemies? Well, and we know that's the way it is. Paul tells that about himself, but Paul also writes in Romans 8, 7, and 8, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's where Paul was. He was in the flesh. He was an enemy by his own account, trying to destroy the church and destroy the faith in Christ. So did God violate Paul's will by forcing him to become a Christian? I get asked this question sometimes. The answer is quite simply no. Our will is free to follow our nature. In our corrupt nature, we freely reject God, and we will freely never accept God. 
in our nat- in our normal sinful human nature. But remember that Old Testament promise of being born again. We've read the passage in Ezekiel 36 many times. I'm going to touch it again today. Verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Once God has taken out that spiritually dead heart of stone and puts in a living spiritual heart of flesh, he puts his spirit on us. At that point, we are a new creature. We are a new creation in Christ. We call that regeneration. And regeneration precedes salvation, precedes faith. I remember reading once, and I've shared this before, the Holy Spirit preventeth salvation, I read. Well, it turns out prevent means pre-event. The Holy Spirit must come before salvation. We must be transformed. And guess what? Then we have that new heart, that new living heart, that new spiritual heart that is no longer in rebellion against God. We have a new nature. And that new nature wants one thing. It wants Christ. It wants God. And thus we freely follow our will. Because our will now is to be with God. Romans 8 continues, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. That was the promise. God will take out your heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, give you the Holy Spirit, If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you you're not in the flesh anymore, but in the Spirit. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 9-11. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians five, seventeen and eighteen. So our calling is really part of God's eternal plan to give a people to his son, and that plan cannot fail, and our calling cannot fail because it is something God has decided in advance and will carry through to completion, not just from choosing us before the foundations of the world, but all the way to glory, including calling us and that calling being heard. Now, you've heard my testimony. Yes, I was called by men years before God called me. Now, we're talking about that effectual calling of God and changing our heart. It precedes and is part of our regeneration, where God has called us and we are reborn in the image of his Son. That being said, what is he talking about here in this passage about our worthiness? Now, the ESV version and the other versions disagree here. Honestly, I like the theology of the ESV. The ESV says that God will may make you worthy of his calling. Whereas the King James and the NASB say that God would count you worthy of his calling. Uh, I like the theology, but it's an interpretation. You know, our worthiness to enter the kingdom of God doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the work of Christ on the cross. 
which is accounted to us by faith, which Paul says is a gift of God, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. Talking about the faith is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. It is not of works so that no one may boast. It is a free and unmerited gift of God. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If our faith were of our good works, we would be earning salvation. We could boast of our worthiness and not boast in the mercy of God. And so I kind of like the word make, but that's not the meaning here. It, it means to think or deem worthy, that God would consider us worthy. And the meaning really is still the same, but the words are different and can be lost and confused if we're not careful. So Paul is saying that may God think you or deem you worthy of, the, of your calling. In other words, are you living, living out the calling in the manner in which he has called you to live. Uh, Paul continues this thought in the second half of verse 11, where he says that his prayers are also that God may enable you to do good works, right? May he fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, the Christian life is a new life of righteousness before God. <coughs> and that's why we are instructed to put to death, therefore, what is of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We looked at the wrath of God in verse 9 last week. Those things that are part of our earthly nature are the cause of his wrath to come. And he says in verse 7, continuing, But in these you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3, 5-10. Note that this is being renewed. It is an ongoing process in our life as a Christian. It must be an ongoing process, and it must be continuing. He then states the positive for what we should do as new creations in Christ, continuing at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen one, God's elect, holy and beloved, passionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Easy, right? We've all got that down perfectly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in whatever you do, and this is the key point, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
That was continuing Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Let me ask you, have you ever resolved to do good works and failed? I think we can all say yes. Have you ever lamented the fact that you're resolved to turn from a sin and do what is right before God? Turns out to do exactly the thing you hate. I know I do. Paul himself knew that pain. He knew that pain of stumbling like that. We find his account of that in Romans chapter 7. And I want us to look there for a moment. Verse 15, he says of Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not want to do, I do. I do the very things I hate. Now, Ben there, done that, bought the T-shirt, gave it away to uh, charity already. Um, that's our life. We can understand with Paul. For what I do not want, I do. I do what I hate. Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that is dwelling in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, the old man. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, the godless sometimes try to turn this passage around as an excuse and say, it's okay for us to sin. I'm perfect in my holiness. It's not me who sins. It is my flesh. And therefore, you know, I am righteous before God, and I am entitled to go to heaven on my, work, on my own goodness. They say various things along those lines. Even some Christians have tried to use this as an excuse to say, see, the devil made me do it. It's not me, it's the flesh. I'm innocent. Well, that's not really what Paul is getting at here. As we read this part of Romans 7, we know that Paul is saying he he accepts fully his responsibility for sin. He hates his sin. Remember what John said? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. The Christian must accept that he has sinned, must take responsibility for his sins, and must confess his sins to God and turn from his sin. So continuing that thought in Romans 7, picking up at verse 21 now, he said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. You know, as a Christian, as a believer, we must delight in the law of God which is to say we acknowledge that it is good, we acknowledge that it is right, we acknowledge that it is just, and we want to do it. If not, you really have to question, are you even a believer if you don't think that? We must delight in the law of God. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If Paul was embracing sin and saying, see, sin is okay, it's just in the body. 
you know, in my spirit, I am right with God. He would not be saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, that is something all believers must say when we realize our sin, when we see that once again, over and over again, we keep on doing what we hate. <coughs> we say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God, serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. Far from being an excuse for sin, Romans 7 is calling us to the good fight in Christ. But we fail at it. We fail at every day in every way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately weak. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17:9. We deceive ourselves and pretend everything is well. We say, oh, you know, it's not me who sinned, it's my flesh. It's not me who sinned, it's the old man. It's not my fault, it's the devil. They'd be do it. We really need to Christian up and face the truth that our hearts are filled still with sin. We need to deal with that. God may have trans- begun the transformation of our soul, but he has left sin in our members. That's why he calls us to put to death what is of the earthly nature. This is an ongoing process to weaken it, to rob it of power. The old King James uses the word mortify, which I think is wonderful, but we don't know what that word means anymore. But it means to rob something of its life, of its power, of its ability. And that's what we want to be doing with our sin. We want to rob it of its power. Now, you might ask, though, why does God allow this? We're called to do it, but we don't have the power to fully do it. Why? Well, I think in part, He's showing our dependence on him for our righteousness. You know, it's not our righteousness that saves us, but Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect life imputed to us. On the, we receive by faith all the good that Jesus did, right? He was born under law. He obeyed the law. He did everything. And what was the reward? You know, the one who does these things shall live by them, life. And he gives us that life to his people. He is the one whose perfect life belongs to us. We see that in Romans 4, talks about that a lot, about imputation, about a, you can think of the books of the law, of the history of our deeds opened up, and all our sins are recorded in the book. Well, that's taken off our page and put on Christ on the cross. And then his righteousness, all the things he did right, all his perfect fulfillment of the law, that is copied onto our page. And so when the judgment comes, Our sin is paid in Christ, and we are seen as righteous in the sight of God because of the work of Christ. But even our good works in this life need to come from a dependence on the grace of God, his free and unmerited gift. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Note well, it is God's work that we will to do good. It is God's work that we do good. 
It's a very important idea. Both our desire, our resolve to do it, and our ability to do it come through the grace of God. It is God who works in you. This is why Paul here in verse 11 says that God may fulfill his prayers, that God may fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by his power. We've seen in Romans 7 that we want to do right, we want to do good, we want to do what God has asked, but we keep doing what we know is wrong. And that's why Paul says it's his prayer that God will fulfill that resolve to do good, that every work of faith would be done through his power, that he would give you the strength to do so. The obligation is 100% ours, but the ability to do it requires the grace of God. And we are dependent on his grace, not just for salvation, but for leading the Christian life. We can be obligated, but we need to remember that it is his grace that gives us the power. This is what Jesus, I think, is talking about in John 15, where he talks about, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. An allusion to the final judgment. And that's John 15, 4 through 6. We need to understand God did not, as some people think, look down through the annals of time, look down through the annals of time and elect us because we would have superior good works to others. Rather, he elected us so that we could do the good works that he had prepared beforehand for us to do. That's what Paul says, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. The next verse, we shouldn't stop there, verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. God not only called us, not only saved us, not only appointed us to salvation all the way to the glorification, but he has prepared good works that we are to do. And he has assigned those to us, and we will do them through his grace and strength that he gives us. Why is this so important? Well, why must we remain dependent upon him? Why must it be great and not our own goodness? That's the next verse, verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you, and you in him. As mentioned in verse 10, when the day comes, he he comes in that day to be glorified by the saints. He's reiterating it here. This is what the Christian life is supposed to do. We are supposed to live a life that will glorify him. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Jesus tells us we are the light of the world. A city on its hill cannot be hid. 
Nor can people light a lamp and put it under its basket, but on a stand so it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. And again, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. Glorifying God, glorifying Christ in our lives is our calling. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. John 15:16. We are called to produce fruit to glorify God. And while we do not have, as we saw in Romans 7, the strength to do that, we keep doing the things we hate. We don't do the things we desire and know are right. We turn to God in weeping, in sackcloth, in ash, wretched man that I am. And we call out to God for strength and for grace to do those things. Well, remember what Paul said to the Colossians? They were in horrible torment and suffering with heresies. And the church was uprooted and in danger of even being destroyed by the Colossian heresy. And he says, and so. From the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will. You need the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We need that knowledge of God. We need that desire to do what is right before God. But we also need that grace from God to be enabled to walk worthy of his calling. And that way, when we do walk worthy of his calling, he gets the glory. It is not me, but it is God. It is not my strength and my wisdom and my greatness and my holiness, but it is the grace that God has given me that allows me to live a life pleasing to him. But he doesn't stop there, right? Not only do we glorify, that Jesus' name be glorified in us, but that we be glorified in him. And Jesus is revealed from, that, from heaven on that great and terrible day of the Lord. We share in his glory. Peter tells us, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You know, he will be glorified by our doing what he has called us to do, by our dependence upon him, and by our actions enabled through the grace of God. But also then we will be glorified for having done what is right, and we will be transformed as he is into our resurrection bodies, into a, a future of sinlessness and perfection and purity. And in that way, we will also be glorified in him. Now that he finishes this with the key point, according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep that in mind when we get proud, when we get arrogant, when we think we're better than others, when we think they have that sin. And Lord, I thank you I'm not like that publican like that tax collector. 
When we start to think that in our hearts, we need to remember that everything we are and everything that we have and everything that we do in Christ is according to the grace of God, that free, unmerited gift from our Lord. And that is where we should rest our hearts, that we might turn to God and praise God and give glory to him in all things. And also, you know, when we struggle with these sins, yes, my obligation is to turn from my sin and turn to Christ and do what is right. But I can call out to him, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it, but only through the grace that God gives me. And that is what we're called to do in this little conclusion to this chapter about the return of the Lord. It is a wonderful and glorious chapter that reminds us that we are not suffering needlessly. We are not suffering and not going to get rewarded. We are not suffering and justice will not come. It will all be taken care of. But by faith, it is in the things that are not seen. It is in eternity not today. Sometimes, yes, we get relief today. Sometimes we get justice today. But our hope is in the eternal work of the Lord and in the grace that he gives us to live each day. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, that we have that hope in us, that we can trust in you, who you who began a good work in us will carry it through to the day of completion, to the day of the Lord that when judgment comes upon the earth, our sins really will be paid for by Christ. When our eternal destination is being determined, you will see the work of your Son that was given to us. And Lord, you will also see the good things we have done, that we have done not in our own power and strength and wisdom and glory and greatness, but done in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that we would focus our hearts on fighting that good fight, on running that race set before us, and glorifying you in our bodies and in our souls and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.